Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-supported community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your fourth-week host, Stu Levitan. Very glad to have you with us as we welcome Madison native Doug Moe for a conversation about his new biography of the UW's first director of women's athletics, Kit Saunders-Nordine. On June 23, 1972, President Richard Nixon did two things with historical significance. In a meeting with Chief of Staff H.R. Haldeman, he told Haldeman to call FBI Director Pat Gray and tell him to stay the hell away from Watergate because it was a CIA matter, which, of course, it was not. This was the so-called smoking gun tape, which quickly led to Nixon's resignation when it was released a little over two years later. And with a more appropriate eye towards his re-election campaign, Nixon also signed the Education Amendment Act of 1972 with its 37 words and four commas, now known as Title IX. Quote, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. The impact of Title IX on women's athletics at the University of Wisconsin and the critical role that Catherine Kitt Saunders played in defining that impact is the business that occupies Doug Moe in his latest biography, The Right Thing to Do, Kitt saunders Nordine and the Rise of Women's Intercollegiate Athletics at the University of Wisconsin and Beyond. It is a book the native Madisonian and 1979 graduate of the University of Wisconsin is well-equipped to write. Doug Moe is, after all, one of Madison's most prolific and honored journalists and authors. He's written 12 books, including Tommy Thompson's autobiography, biographies of legendary Chicago newspaperman Mike Royko, Madison builder Marshall Erdman, and Madison jewelers and philanthropists Irwin and Robert Goodman a history of the fabled but now defunct UW boxing program, and more. In his 18 years as a daily columnist with the Capital Times and Wisconsin State Journal, he wrote more than 4,000 columns, which I think is about 3 million words, and uh, continues to write a monthly column for Madison Magazine and a weekly blog for its website. He is so active, in fact, that his website is not dougmo.com. It is dougmo.org. Speaking personally, in my work as a historian of Madison, I know I have benefited greatly from several of his books, and I'm looking forward very much to one he's working on now, the autobiography of State Senator Fred Risser. It is a great pleasure to welcome to Madison Bookbeat, the great biographer of modern Madison, my friend, Doug Moe. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks. I, uh, I've also, in my columns and books, uh, utilized uh, a lot of your work. So I guess it's a two-way street, nothing wrong with that. Well, I appreciate that. And, and it seems like every time I have a court appearance, I bring you along. <laughs> <laughs> Remember the last one we were at? This, the Cinderella, the, the parking, the, the parking meter story. The bailiff said, are you, are you armed with anything? And, and you said only the truth. <laughs> that was pretty good. I was so pretentious. And that wasn't too long ago, was it now? Well, glad to have you with us. As I noted, Title IX turned 50 years old literally three days ago as we're taping this. Was it intricate planning or just happenstance that you wrote a book about Title IX that came out just in time for this big anniversary? You know, it's, it was pure happenstance. It really was. It wasn't until probably I was nearly finished with the, the manuscript that it dawned on me that this next year, being this year, uh, was the 50th anniversary. So uh, remarkably good timing, and, and sometimes you get lucky. So how did the book come about in, in those happenstance circumstances? Yeah, it, well, it came about, I had just finished um, working with Governor Thompson on his autobiography, and um, I got a, a phone, an email from a, from a friend of, of Dale Buzz Nordine's, who was uh, Kit Saunders Nordine's husband, and Kit was very ill with Alzheimer's. I want to say this is 2017, 2018 in that ballpark. Um, but Buzz had, uh, had collected all her papers um, and, and was getting ready to donate them to the UW archive. And then he got this idea that maybe she deserved a biography. And so, so through a friend, he reached out. I ended up meeting him. We got along famously. He offered me 
the uh, that the the material uh, that was that will be donated to the archive, and I was able to embark on on this project. Buzz was was a fine fellow. Buzz and I served on the plan commission together. We we and we live about two blocks away from each other in Nakoma, and I don't think we ever voted alike, but we often <laughs> gave each other rides home. So there was it was a gentle. Yeah, well, you know, he was. Uh, yeah, I, I got along really well with Buzz, and and he he died while I was writing this, but uh, he got to see some chapters and. One funny anecdote uh, about his politics: um, when, when uh, after Kit had retired, uh, the UW had a uh, fundraiser, and the 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 prize, one of the prizes for auction, was a play tennis with Donna Shalala and her mother. And uh, Buzz and Kit won that, and they they played him. They didn't realize that Shalala's mom was a national champion. And had played on center court at Forest Hills, <laughs> and uh, whenever uh, whenever she hit a winner, Donna would say, "That's right, Mom, get those Republicans." <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, Chancellor Shalala figures in the book near the end because, as as part of the revitalization of the UW athletic program, after she hires Pat Richter and and so on and so forth, and we'll get to that. Uh, you mentioned that Kit had Alzheimer's and and was unavailable for conversation or interview you did benefit from two extensive interviews with kit in the fabulous uw oral history program how useful were those interviews oh they were they were absolutely crucial um i probably could have done a book without him but it would have been much less of a book I th my recollection is they're both about 90 minutes long One's just Kit. One is Kit with Tamara Flareup, who is the four-decade sports information director uh, for women's athletics at UW. And I interviewed Tam several times, you know, subsequently. But, but yeah, those interviews, Kit recalling the earliest days, Kit recalling her, her time in as a schoolgirl, you know, trying to find a place to play. Um, they, they really made the book a lot richer than it would have been without them. And, and at every opportunity, I talk up the, the UW oral history program. It's a great resource. That's under Troy Reeves. Uh, I'll ask you again the question I asked you when you gave the talk to Rotary this past week. If you had had the chance to interview Kit, what would you have asked her? Yeah, I, I, as, I, as I said that day, I, I honestly think the, the, the thing that kept coming to my mind as, as I was doing this was how level-headed she seemed in the face of, of many uh, adversarial moments um, and able to keep, kind of keep her cool because, you know, she had faculty women who were saying, you know, justice now, justice now, and, and she felt the same way, but she had to work, you know, inside the, the athletic department umbrella. And, uh, you know, setting off explosives was not her way anyway. Um, and yet she had a real resolve underneath. So I, I, my thinking was that I might have, I wanted to try to understand how hard that was for her. And did there ever come a time when she kind of threw up her hands? Now, some folks might say the fact she retired as early as she did. Um, you know, Peter Tagan, her great track and cross country coach said he, he thought she was exhausted. She retired at 49. Um, part of that was getting married to Buzz, I think, for sure. But but maybe some of that was these battles that she fought. Um, but she didn't quit. And uh, I suspect uh, she would have told me, no, I never I got mad, but I never came close to quitting. Yeah. Going back 50 years, did people realize at the time just what a big deal Title IX was and would be, especially in sports? Uh, great question. And the answer is absolutely not. Um, one of the interesting things I found, a couple interesting things going back to 1972, was how little contemporary coverage it got. You know, trying to find, you know, the New York Times and, and others writing about it at the time, there's some coverage of it, but nobody realized the impact. And um, from a sports standpoint, some of the, the women who, who did understand what this could possibly mean for women's athletics contacted the, the, con the congressional offices that were pushing it and said, we'll come to Washington. You know, we'll, we'll hold up our signs. We'll, we'll back you. And they actually were told, please don't. We, we don't want, 
you know, this is a little bit under the radar. And there was nothing nefarious about it, but it was just, we don't need to, you know, blow this siren any hot, any louder. And so uh, kind of purposefully from a sports standpoint, it, 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 it landed kind of quietly. You note in the book that the then sports <laughs> editor at the Wisconsin State General, Journal, Glenn Miller, was not an early adapter to <laughs> covering women's athletics, to say the least. Were there any other local reporters who didn't get it at the time? <clears throat> uh, maybe a columnist with the Badger Herald? Yeah, I'm afraid. Uh, I, I wouldn't. I hope nobody goes back and actually finds it. But but I, I do have a recollection of writing a column at the time saying that that I thought this was going to really hurt men's athletics. <laughs> um, and I and I didn't realize I, I mean, I'm guilty of this. I just didn't recognize the inherent unfairness of it. And I mean, that, the, that, the that maybe the women, maybe women weren't participating. You know, you, you would say, well, look, they just don't want to play or they're, you know, they don't want to participate. And the fact is they couldn't participate. There were gyms on campus that just uh, like um, there's, I think there's an anecdote in, the, in my book, the red gym had a pool and there was no hard and fast rule that women couldn't swim in it, but the men would go in and swim naked. And, and it was just kind of understood that the women couldn't utilize this. Well, at some point, I think post Title IX, but not very far post, several women went in on a Saturday and started swimming, you know, and then took their clothes off. And I mean, yeah, a lot of men had to wake up to what, what, what was fair and what wasn't. And, and sadly, I was uh, one of them. Chancellor Edwin Young apparently realized right away that this was a significant because within a month, he appoints a committee to study how to respond Alas, he puts Elroy Hirsch in charge of the committee, which was a bad choice if he really wanted the committee to take its assignment seriously, wasn't it? It was, Elroy being the, the men's athletic director. And it was immediately post-Title IX, as you say, and Young wanted to, how can we bring women's athletics into a more equitable situation on campus? Well, Kit was on that committee. Um, a faculty member named Muriel Sloan was on that committee. Uh, the committee met, met once in eight months, and Sloan wrote a letter to Chancellor Young and just saying this, this non-committee is not doing its job, and um, I'm going to resign unless you get, it gets serious. And at that point, uh, Young appointed a professor named Murray Fowler, and the committee actually did start meeting and came up with some recommendations. Now, Hirsch, I don't know if in fairness is the right way to frame this, but you know, Title IX, uh, it, it said what it said, but it didn't say anything about how all of a sudden you're going to you're going to fund these enterprises over on the on the women's athletic side. So the men were uh, the men's athletics department were thinking, you know, this is we're in a quandary here. And um, the women uh, ended up answering that argument by saying, well, if there's actually a shortfall, We'll share in the shortfall, but we're not going to be ignored anymore. And, uh, and as I say, with this new committee, they came up with some recommendations, one of them being we should hire a director of women's athletics at UW. And on May 3rd, 1974, Elroy and the athletic board chair, uh, Professor Haberman, announced the appointment of Kit as the first director of women's intercollegiate athletics at the UW. What was the UW Women's Intercollegiate Athletic Program at that time? They had 11 sports. Kid had started a program, a club sport program, which was a little more than intramural. In other words, they would have some road trips and play against other schools. They just, they didn't have varsity status. It's interesting though, Stu, you know, when you look back, there's absolutely no way, there was no one else that, that should have been appointed athletic director. But Kit said, in a, in a subsequent magazine interview, she said the women's phi ed department was not all gone home for me to get that job. And that goes back to something we haven't touched on yet, which is that the women's physical education at UW had a powerful national voice with a woman named Blanche Trilling in the first half of the century. And she was a national leader for women's phi ed and very instrumental in getting participation uh, among girls and women in sports. But she had a real a real bugaboo about elite competition. 
And that mindset really permeated it in Madison at UW more than probably any place else. A girl for every sport, a sport for every girl. But boy, uh, I'm a fr- trilling here and now I'm paraphrasing. You know, I, I don't think competition for women uh, is, a, is healthy, that it's a good thing. So Kit was fighting that. And even as I say, as she's named athletic director, there were some within the PE department who didn't want to see her take that role. There were even some scary concepts of women doing damage to the intricacies of their body by participating in sports. A woman named Becky Sisley. It was interesting in the 60s in Madison, when Kit arrived from New Jersey for grad school, she ended up, there wasn't any organized sports for women at UW, but there was a field hockey team that was city of Madison. They got to use a UW field. Um, and three or four of Kit's teammates on that, she played field hockey for this Madison team in the 60s. Three or four of her teammates went on and became leading administrators in, in women's athletics. One of them's name was, was Becky Sisley, and I interviewed Becky Sisley. She became the first uh, director of women's athletics at the University of Oregon. And when I talked to her, she went historically back to some distance racing in the Olympics when they first let women run uh, two five-mile races, something like that, two, two miles, five miles, a couple of them dropped over. They, had, they weren't ready for it. And uh, that set back uh, women's athletics, uh, competitive athletics. And, and Cicely was the one who made the quote to me, they were afraid our uteruses would fall out, you know. Um, and sadly, that still isn't, isn't all gone in terms of, of the way uh, some men view, view women's athletics, but uh, it's better. We're talking with Doug Moe. His new book is The Right Thing to Do, Kit Saunders-Nordine and the Rise of Women's Intercollegiate Athletics at the University of Wisconsin and Beyond. Let's backtrack to the beginning and see how Kit got to 1440 Monroe Street Anybody who knew Kit as a kid or a college student back in Teaneck would think her appointment as, as women's athletic director and all the rest of her athletic and educational career made perfect sense and maybe was even expected, wouldn't they? Yeah, she. Uh, I, I ended up finding a sixth grade classmate of hers um, who I had an email interview with. His name was Art Brown, and uh, he said that Kit would get picked um, in the playground games before any of the boys. She was just a terrific nat- natural athlete. She grew frustrated, as did many um, girls, that there weren't sports opportunities for her uh, as a junior high, high school. The only ones were extra school. In other words, she played some field hockey on a, on a club team, but it wasn't affiliated with her school. Interestingly, maybe a decade ago now, Stu, or 15 years ago, Teaneck High School, where she graduated, reached out to her and said, we're starting an athletic hall of fame. And we, we understand that you have a very distinguished career in, in athletics, and we'd like to, to honor you. What, what sports did you play? And she wrote back and said, there were no sports for me when I was in high school at Teaneck High School. So she's not in the athletic hall of fame. She's in a distinguished alumni uh, hall that they have at the high school. But in terms of her college career, what would you give or pay to see a video of Kit's synchronized swim team performance <laughs> of Over the Rainbow? Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, that it was fun. You know, some of the stuff that Buzz had uh, when he gave me the, the material that was headed to the archives were her high school and college yearbooks. And, uh, and I actually interviewed a, a college classmate of hers, too, who spoke about the synchronized swimming. And, and Kit in interviews didn't talk about that, but, <laughs> but she talked about going and playing in these club sports and getting like a bruise on her, on her nose or forehead or something, playing these weekend club sports or, or, yeah, private sports and fearing that her gym teachers at Trenton College were going to get angry at her for, for going outside to participate. I mean, you know, and this, this fast forwards to, to in the 60s when Kit's colleague Nancy Page uh, talked about them having a, ba- a basketball game at Lathrop Hall against a North team from Northern Illinois and having to do it under the cover of darkness. And when the administrators found out, they, they threatened to punish him for playing basketball. Talking about Kit as, as a field hockey player, 
she was an all-star in that 1964 Madison City team. I'm frankly surprised that you were able to find coverage in the Madison newspapers of a women's field hockey team's game in 1964, which mentioned Kit. Did that surprise you? It it did. Um, it wasn't much coverage, frankly. You know, it was a few paragraphs. But it it as you know, as you'll appreciate as a journalist, do it. It not only mentioned Kit, but it mentioned these other women like Nancy Page and Becky Sisley, who I was able then to reach out and find and interview about those days. So so that little bit of newspaper coverage was was great for me. I've got uh, Kit's field hockey stick, by the way. <laughs> that was that was also part of the material that. Uh, and, you know, interestingly, one of the toughest decisions that she was involved in uh, as athletic director um, came in 1981 when, when they decided to drop field hockey. It was a tough, it wasn't, from a, from a logical standpoint, it wasn't a tough call because high schools were increasingly not having it. They were moving over to soccer. And, you know, it was pretty clear that soccer was was uh, going to usurp it and, and become the favored sport. Um, and indeed, the Badgers did UW did add soccer for, for women and and drop field hockey. But that was tough for Kit, given her history, history with that sport. Just the way dropping baseball must have been tough for Pat Richter, who had been a, a varsity baseball player. Absolutely. Um and you know, uh, t- Title IX was part of that. It wasn't. It wasn't the entire thing. The this was. We jump forward a decade now to like ninety ninety one. The football program, if you'll recall, which is really the the engine that that drives the, the economics of the athletic department, had fallen on very tough times uh, in the years preceding Shalala hiring Pat. So they were fighting not only uh, trying to balance and, and upgrade the women's programs, but they were trying to do it with a uh, less, much less uh, income than they had had previously. Forty-five thousand attending a seventy a game in a seventy thousand seat arena is not a good sign. And 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 we'll get to the role of Pat Richter and Al Fish and mm-hmm. Donna Shalala in resurrecting the department. Kit comes to Madison in 1964 to get her master's. And you mentioned the Blanche Trilling legacy. The woman, the chair of the of the women's phys ed department when Kit came here was a woman named Lois Halverson, who mm-hmm. was a woman who gave Kit the, the teaching assistantship. And she had the same attitude towards women participating as opposed to competing that Blanche Trilling did. How did Kit deal with that when she got here? You know, she didn't like it, but she ended up doing a PhD on, on, on women's, uh, the administration of college athletics. And it was interesting. She, so she gets, she studies the past and she finds out that actually before, before Trilling, who came to Madison, I think in 1918, thereabouts, they actually had uh, women's sports on campus. There was, uh, uh, she found some old Badger yearbooks that showed basketball, women playing basketball and there being a band there. And I think it was intermarital, but nevertheless, it was competitive. It basically just disappeared for 50 years. You know, so she, she was up against that, but the tide was turning. You know, you got to remember too, part of it was social in the, in the, as we move into the late sixties, especially kid arrived in 64, you know, civil rights, the nascent feminist movement, you know, I think women had been allowed back into distance racing at the Olympics for the first time in either 64 or 60. So there was there was a wave was coming. And, and despite the opposition of some in the FIED department, um, she was able to get this vibrant club sport program going. And then, of course, in 72, uh, the game changer, which, as we can talk about, took a little while to actually change. But nevertheless, that got the ball rolling re- big time. You mentioned her thesis. She finishes her thesis in 67, becomes Dr. Nordine, becomes a member of the faculty given responsibility for administering the sports program. How extensive and funded was the women's sports program before Title IX, in those last years before Title IX? Uh, My recollection, uh, not having it right in front of me, is I think the the women's sports club, club sports program had a budget of $18,000, um, you know, for 11 sports. 
Um, so, so it was not great. And one thing that I found that, that Kit wrote about, she had come up with 25,000, I think, as, as the figure she needed, if I'm remembering correctly. And she went to actually to Chancellor Young and found the money uh, to, to get that gap, that 18 to $25,000 gap. And the community uh, recreation and wellness on campus that ran uh, the club sports got upset with her and threatened the 18,000, the original 18,000, because she'd gone over their head uh, to fill this budget hole. And they ended up backing down. But as Kit wrote, somehow that never made it into the minutes of the, uh, <laughs> of the meeting. So she could, you know, I, I keep saying she'd like to get along and she did, but, but she also understood when she was getting uh, hosed and, uh, and didn't appreciate it and, and, and made ironic note of it in this piece she wrote. It's remarkable that even as she's becoming a member of the faculty, she's still, Kit is still working in summer as a camp counselor for the Madison School District Community Recreation Program. Is, is that a testament to how driven she was or, or the high quality of the Madison School Community Rec Program? I think both and also uh, the fact that they were not exactly overpaid at that, <laughs> that time, even, you know, even as faculty. Um, and uh, I think she enjoyed it. You know, I, I think one, one thing she did for community rec was skiing. And she had a lifelong love of downhill skiing and, and taught classes out at Tyrol. The, uh, the first picture of her in a Madison newspaper came uh, as a, it was a community rec thing. It wasn't with, with UW. And I think, as I recall, she was in a boat uh, helping people learn to row or, you know, crew, something like that. You mentioned club sports. What did it mean to fold the women's extramural sports teams into the program of club sports? I think there may have been some more money involved. Their budget went up a little bit, although Kit's first budget as club sport director was literally like $2,000 for 10 or 11 sports. Um, and and I, I referenced it at Rotary the other day. I mean, they, they used to have to use, they had some uniforms, but they had to, they had to wash them quick because the volleyball or, or basketball uniforms had to go over to the track team. You know, I mean, it was really, it was really quite something. Um, and, and these athletes, you know, one of the fun things for, for me in this book was, was interviewing the athletes. And of course, some of them have daughters now and their daughters are like, you got to be kidding me. You, you what? You had to wash your own uniforms, you know, or you, you know, you had to switch uniforms or. Yeah, it was a different world. How was the Wisconsin program doing in comparison to the rest of the Big Ten and what we'd call the other power five schools? That's a good question. From what I could tell. Uh, we were among the leaders in terms of uh, recognizing women's sports and, and elevating the program. Um, I know the, the WIS Club, it was called, which was the, the booster club for women's athletics, which was very important in fundraising, came about in, in the mid-70s, right about the time when Kit became athletic director, women's athletic director. Um, it was the first such booster club in the conference. Um, you know, Paula Bonner, uh, Kit's assistant, got a radio show. One of the interesting components that when you mentioned the Big Ten is that it took a while for the Big Ten Conference to actually put the women's uh, sports under the Big Ten umbrella. That, that did not happen immediately. I think that took about four or five years. And um, I know Tam Flareup, the sports information director, uh, fought to have the, their records that were established prior to actually being under that umbrella recognized. In other words, with one of their sprinters ran a, the, the world record in the, you know, hundred yard dash, big 10 wouldn't recognize. Cause I mean, as a conference uh, record, um, I think that subsequently got, got uh, fixed, but, but Tam was adamant about that. And she said, now it's not a big deal because they've all been broken. You know, I mean, now the athletes are faster and all that. But how how did that situation with the Big Ten relate in time to the pas de deux between the Association for 
intercollegiate athletic for women and the NCAA trying to take it over in 1979? Yeah, I, I don't know that the conference itself had had a took a stand on that. And I and again, forgive me for not getting my dates exact on when the Big Ten actually recognized that may have actually come a little bit after the, the AIAW NCAA dust up, which was a very important thing. The AIAW uh, was the preeminent organization for women's intercollegiate athletics. They, they established tournaments and championships. They did everything essentially that the NCAA were, was doing for the men. Um, all, they weren't as well funded. And so when the time came circa 1980, 1981, when the women's basketball tournament got a national television contract and there appeared to be money to be made by uh, embracing women's athletic, intercollegiate athletics, the NCAA came in and they had a lot to offer. They, they paid for teams to go to tournaments, which the AIAW did not. Um, there was some prestige, just that NCAA moniker, you know, um, but Kit and, and UW uh, hung tough with, with the AIAW for a couple of years. And the attrition was, you know, it wasn't complete. It, it took a couple of years, but it happened. And the AIAW went, went under, went, uh, went away. Now, again, some in women's athletics didn't mind that because of these financial benefits. But what happened was a lot of women's administrators basically got shoved down the ladder and in almost every instance, you know, the, the, the male, uh, male dominated uh, administration continued and, and eventually that changed. A, a woman from UW-Madison became NCAA president, but that was a decade later. And she wrote the foreword to the book. She did, Judy Sweet, uh, mentored by Kit in the late 60s in Madison. And uh, she was a Milwaukee native, uh, really a terrific, uh, gave me a great interview on on the NCAA versus AIAW, you know, she felt that, that it wasn't a merger so much as a submerger, she called it. But yeah, as I say, she ended up uh, doing well for NCAA and, and promoting women's athletics. Now, how much of Kit's support for maintaining the AIAW was due to the fact that by this time, by 1979, she was a division vice president of the organization? Yeah, a division one vice president. I think I think that was part of it. She believed in the organization. To, to her mind, I think she saw the potential negatives that would come with NCAA, which um, would be the the, uh, the merging of some uh, some departments uh, or within universities, and and the women ending up sort of, you know, under, if you will. Uh, and 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 even now, all these years later, four decades later, more. The New York Times did a piece a year or two ago. And at the top, you've seen the power five conferences, the top 50 schools, something like that. There's five women directors of athletics. So one of them is a former Madisonian um, out at the University of Idaho, I think it is now. And she helped me with my book and I'm spacing on her name. But she was a she was a, a you know, um, an administrator here and got hired to run both men's and women's athletics out west. But that's still a rarity. That's still a rarity. And the NCAA is still not covering itself in glory with some of the accommodations uh, it provides to the women athletes. Yeah, sad to say uh, in 2021, uh, the NCAA, the basketball tournament, you know, March, March Madness, um, a female athlete uh, posted on social media uh, a couple of pictures that, that uh, was evidence of the disparity between the workout facilities uh, allotted um, the women athletes and the women's teams and the men's teams. And it was pretty bad. And, and the NCAA uh, did a mea culpa, promised to do better. Um, but as Judy Sweet uh, said in her foreword, we've come a long way, but we must remain vigilant. Mm. And uh, yeah. We're talking with Doug Moe. His new book is The Right Thing to Do, Kit Saunders-Nordine and the Rise of Women's Intercollegiate Athletics at the University of Wisconsin and beyond. How good was Kit's eye for talent, both administrators within the department and as coaches? Good question. I, I think, uh, you know, it was in, one thing that that's, I should mention that's kind of interesting is that uh, in 1982, 
uh, Kit's role change. She went from director of women's athletics to assistant athletic director in charge of all non-income sports. So uh, that meant all women's sports, but also the majority of, of men's sports. Um, so she had to learn pretty quickly about baseball, at least for a while, and some other sports that she hadn't been familiar with. You know, I think, you know, one, one uh, example of a hire uh, that was uh, particularly outstanding was the volleyball coach. And uh, forgive me, Stu, gosh, my memory is... Is this Steve Lowe? Steve Lowe. Yes, thank you. Um, Paula was much involved in that as well. But, but boy, they did a terrific job of, of finding this young guy um, who had, who had uh, been an assistant on a, on a top program out on the West Coast brought him in. It's a very poignant story in the book, actually, because he comes to Madison and he begins the process. The volleyball team had struggled in the 70s and and early 80s. He begins the process of of building this team. And as we know now, volleyball is powerhouse. We're national champions this past season. Um, By 1990, Steve Lynn Kidd has just retired. Steve Lowe has them in the NCAA tournament. And they play a match at the field house, a tournament early round match, and they draw almost 11,000 fans. You know, a lot due to his the charismatic uh, uh, guy, Lowe, who coached, also their success on the court, obviously. Um, but Kit and Tam Flareup are in the top rows of the field house when Tam told me with tears streaming down their eyes, watching 11,000 people come in to a, to a women's volleyball game. Mm-hmm. Um, poignant end to this is Lowe, uh, like the next year, was diagnosed with lung cancer, non-smoker, um, and died very quickly, uh, shockingly. Um, and is still honored each season. Yeah, the, 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 there's an, a Steve Lowe night each year uh, now um, at the games, the home games. Um, and the program that he, that he launched is obviously uh, uh, honors him as well. Yeah. 11,000 is almost as many as used to come to boxing tournaments at the field house. <laughs> well, they could put chairs on the basketball floor, so they got more for boxing. And if people want to read more about the boxing program, Lords of the Ring. Uh, Recently optioned again for a movie, by the way. Oh, okay. Well, that's I mean, Yeah, as you know, being having an option and, and actually seeing a movie are two vastly different things. But uh, yeah, yeah, a guy out in New York who thinks it would be a great documentary. So we'll oh, see. Well, good luck. You mentioned that when she became associate athletic director, she had oversight over some of the men's sports as well. How did she like that? How did she like having responsibility for men's sports? I think she she was fine with that. Um, you know, the thing that that had always one thing that had always bothered her when she was, when it was women's kind of versus the men, they, she, they would say, well, the women's, uh, women's sports don't bring in any money. They're, they're just a, a kind of a drag on everything. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that, that 90% of the men's sports weren't money-making either um, other than football and basketball. And for a time and, and kind of more, more marginally hockey. Um, so, you know, I, I think she was fine with that. I, I remember finding some letters that she wrote home saying, as I think I mentioned earlier, you know, I've, I've had to learn a, a little bit about baseball, for instance, which she didn't know a lot about. But she certainly didn't have a, uh, any kind of problem, you know, uh, being an administrator, you know, and having male colleagues as well. She apparently felt she knew enough about baseball to fire the coach. <laughs> well, that's right. Um, and you know, these are tough calls, but, uh, you know, he, what, they weren't getting it done on the field, but it, it went beyond that from what I could tell from the news accounts at the time. Um, there had been some controversy that did not reflect well on that, on that coach. Um, you know, but she had the same thing happen on the, on the women's side, Stu, the, probably the most famous example being a basketball coach, Edwina Qualls. Uh, who, who was here seven or eight years and, and was very heralded on arrival and did a pretty good, darn good job, um, but was pretty feisty and, and filed a Title IX complaint at one point um, and then had a really uh, extraordinary controversy happen up in, at a game in Minnesota in 1984 where she pulled, she told her team there was a, it was a very rough game and, 
in the second half, she thought the officials weren't doing their job and calling fouls. And she ordered her team off the floor and back to the locker room and the Badgers and uh, five of the Badgers, including two senior co-captains said, we're not leaving. We're, you know, we're, we're, we have a chance. We're going to play this game. And uh, you know, you mentioned the newspaper coverage of field hockey back in the sixties, which was very unusual that there was any, well, the next day, you know, think about that. She ordered the team off the court. Everybody left except five players who finished the game the last 10 minutes or so they lost. Um, I read this, the accounts the next day, there were a few paragraphs. And I think if I'm wrong, there might've been a mention that some Wisconsin players went to the locker room, but it was not a big deal at all. It took like three days for the Madison media to figure out this had happened. And after that, it became quite a, quite a big controversy. And the initial response, the, the way I read the account in the book is that Paula Bonner says, if, if coach Qualls, we stand by the coach and if the coach suspends the players, we will stand by the coach. And then within a couple of days or a week or so, Kit and Elroy issue a statement. No, no, they, they reprimand the coach and restore the co-captaincies. Yes. Was Kit involved in that original statement or was that original statement purely from Paula Bonner? And if so, how did their relationship play out after that, if it was at all affected? Great question. I'm not sure I know the answer to that. I, I, I remember I interviewed Paula about that sequence of events, and it's clearly not one of her favorite topics it, it, you know it was a it was a tough thing um my belief is that paula made that original call um you know standing by the coach um as more details became started to come out uh um kit and uh elroy um decided that that no that, that the coach had erred um paula and and Paula Bonner and Kit Saunders Nordine had a very interesting relationship, I think, a, a very good one. But, you know, Paula uh, told me that she, when, when Kit was uh, promoted to, to men's and women's athletics, non-income sports, Paula was promoted to, to I think, an associate director in, in charge of women's sports, something like that. She never got a director's title. Um, she didn't go to the Big Ten meetings for women's sports. Kit did. So there was some friction there. I think there was some friction sometimes in that she didn't think Kit fought hard enough. Um, but, and this kept coming up repeatedly, um, their respect for each other, their friendship sort of in the end carried the day. Um, but it would be wrong to say that there was not friction, you know. You mentioned Coach Qualls and the complaint she filed. Not only did she not clear the complaint with Kit, which obviously she wouldn't have to, she didn't even tell Kit about it after she filed it, and the university didn't even know about it until well into 1978. That just seems unfathomable to me. It is, it is amazing. Yeah, I, I only learned that Kit didn't know about it because I found a letter that, that she wrote to a, you know, a college friend saying things are good here. I had one coach who, who filed a Title IX complaint without, without me knowing about it. So I, I think Kit was more hurt by that than, it, but, you know, than anything. I think she respected Qualls' right to file that. Qualls had, you know, she documented uh, in the State Journal article when it finally did come out, you know, they, they had inferior facilities, they had inferior travel, they had inferior practice time. In fact, you know, the visiting men's team would, would get to kick them off the court to practice. And, and also I should mention, not, I don't, cause doesn't maybe need defending from me, but, but just as a point of fact, Tam Flareup told me Edwina filing that complaint took a lot of heat for a lot of other coaches who felt exactly the same way. She was the one that had the guts to file it. And again, you know, whether the health education welfare department came down and landed on UW, they didn't, but it got the, uh, it got everybody's attention and it, and, and these, these situations would elevate, um, you know, they, they just have to take action, you know, to, to realize they're going to, the, uh, the hammer could come down. 
in, and if you don't file, if you don't file a complaint, well, nobody's going to do anything. So. In terms of getting people's attention, there are a number <laughs> of noteworthy, you know where I'm going with this. There <laughs> were a number of noteworthy protests on the UW campus in the 60s and 70s. Perhaps the most interesting happened in the athletic department offices on December 4th, 1979. Tell us about that protest and the impact it had on facilities for women. The, uh, the UW crew team, women's crew, which had won a national championship in 1975, it was, it was less than a year after Kit was named women's athletic director. So it was her first national championship. So a very decorated uh, sport in, in women's athletics at UW. 1979, the team went to Elroy Hirsch's office, the offices in Camp Randall, uh, the men's athletic director's office, and um, in the kind of in the entryway there, a couple dozen, 20 uh, women's crew members changed from their street clothes into their uh, rowing clothes um, because they still didn't have a locker room. And they were frustrated, um, angry, and they totally copied uh, Yale University. Their captain told me in an interview, Yale had done this back in 1976 for the same reason. You know, it, it, it got a lot of publicity and alerted the media. So there were TV stations there. Interestingly, the captain of that team, Jane Ludwig, told me that afterwards she got letters from alumni who were upset with her and the team for doing that. She got she said the male, the male crew team members who had been my friends were no longer my friends. This is seven years after Title IX. Now they did they did get a locker room. Uh, it got it, it was three or four months on. They got a, a, a temporary locker room, and then then not too long after that, they got they got a real locker room facility. So it worked. I was interested in Jane Ludwig's memory forty years on uh, when I interviewed her that that it's still that the reaction still stung. She said something like, you know, you don't know it when you, until you stick your neck out what, it, what can happen, you know? A couple of years later, spring of 86, uh, Kit is honored uh, YWCA Women of Distinction. She has a, a performance review with uh, an associate director named Ralph Neal that's positively glowing. And then shortly thereafter, there's yet another department reorganization uh, this one apparently Kit did not appreciate so much. Yeah, she got um, moved to do more, um, I think, public relations type uh, work, which she was not, I mean, she was good at, but um, specifically she, she didn't have responsibility over uh, uh, sports and, and coaches. And that both, there was a financial component to that and um, she just, I don't think she believed in Ralph Neal, frankly, felt that he was, was doing the best possible thing for the department. So that may have that, you know, he was, he left fairly shortly after that. And there was, as you alluded to, quite a big shakeup in the department that may have had a role in her thinking, you know, it was around the same time she met Buzz Nordine and, uh, you know, she ended up stepping aside not too long after that. It seems that Ralph Neal left right about the time that the $4 million deficit was discovered, and he skedaddles out to become a superintendent of a suburban high school school system. And I have to assume that given the way he had jammed up Kit and Paula, they were not impressed by him running out when things got tough. Well, I, th- I think that's fair. Um you know, and I, I remember specifically asking Paul and she said, I liked Ralph. Okay. You yeah. know, um, but that could have been her being politic. Yeah. It, it, it was an amazing time though, Stu, in, in the upper levels of that uh, UW athletic administration, a perfect storm of, of the finances starting to go sideways because of the, the lack of success in football. It was, di- it was a dire situation. Donna Shalala came in, as we alluded to earlier, and, you know, you can't, you can't imagine, I mean, Irv Sh- Irving Shane, who was her predecessor, had, you know, he had assets as a chancellor, but he completely lacked what Donna had, which was a, a realization of the importance of athletics to alumni and how uh, revitalizing an athletic program 
could yield financial benefits that would go across campus and not just have to do with athletics. Talking about administrators who were supportive of Kit, how big a blow was it to her when Otto Breitenbach retired in December 1987? I think it was a significant blow. Uh, Otto had been Elroy Hirsch's um, right-hand guy, for lack of a better term, and also a huge supporter of Kit's in the, uh, in the overall athletic department. And I, you know, I keep re- returning to the fact that she always had to operate within that umbrella. Um, she, could, she wasn't on the outside being able to, to you know, throw, throw a stone here or a stone there and say, you're not getting it done. She had to work within that framework. Otto was a great champion of hers. They, they, I think they operated the same way in terms of trying to be collegial uh, taking a stand when, when you had to, but, but not unnecessarily, you know, setting fires. And he, I think, wanted that top job, thought he probably was in line for it, that Sponberg ended up getting. And so he left. And yeah, that was another ally of hers no longer there. And it's about this time that she meets our, our friend Buzz. Talk just a bit about their relationship and what they meant to each other. It was great. It was great. They, uh, uh, the family shared some letters with me, which I appreciated, um, my courtship letters. It it happened pretty quickly. They met on a tennis court. Um, Some friends uh, had invited, uh, I think it was one or or the other, to to join them and then uh, a couple, and they needed the fourth. And so it was either Buzz or Kit that, that became the fourth, and that's how they met. And, uh, and pretty soon they were, they were swapping uh, postal letters. There was no texting in those days. Um, Buzz had been married before, but his wife had, had died. And um, Kit was, you know, Buzz said she was, day, she was seeing another couple of gentlemen, but, uh, but pretty quickly um, they latched onto each other and they had a lot of similar interests beyond UW sports. Buzz was a huge UW sports fan. But they both love to travel. They both love uh, sports like skiing and sailing. And it warm your heart to, re- to read those back and forth letters. The, um, those courtship letters are really quite something. It's, yeah. a, it's so old school. Yeah. Yeah. But that's okay. Right? And, and you get a sense that if Kit's father were still alive, Buzz would have asked him for her hand. Yes. Precisely. Yeah. And, and you know, to and interestingly... He had to, you know, he didn't have to ask permission, but they both had to, you know, meet and, and hope for the approval of Buzz's three kids. And, and boy, that came. Um, I know the, the children, adult, very much adult children now, um, you know, grew to love Kit and appreciated what she brought for Buzz. And uh, it really just was a, a great situation. I have some close friends who were side yard neighbors of Kit and Buzz's over on Yuma and and Waban Hill. And they said they were great neighbors. They were just lovely people, just wonderful neighbors. And I think they had a a nice dog too. Yes. You referred earlier to some things happening towards the end of her tenure. Between May and December of 1989, uh, a task force on sex equity releases its report. Paula Bonner resigns as associate assistant director to become assistant executive director of the alumni association, uh, returning Kit to her previous role within the department. Kit inducts Peter Tegan into the Wisconsin Women's Athletic Hall of Fame. Shalala fires Sponberg and hires Pat Richter. That is quite a lot to happen in a short period of time. Did Kit process that by thinking maybe it's time to step down? Great question. Um, yeah, seismic things happening. I, I think, you know, when she was asked about it, Stu, she, she mentioned she thought Pat Richter should have, you know, a chance to kind of name his team. I think Pat would have been delighted if Kid had stayed, you know, and she did stay for, I don't know, what was it, six months or a year while, while Richter was there. And, and she came out of the first meeting uh, that he had with, with uh, his colleagues saying, you know, this is the guy. And so she was pretty excited, I think. So I think it's, it's, you know, not being able to ask her, I think it was the combination probably of all this change, the fact that she is now married, 
Um, Buzz had just retired and now he's got a bunch of time to travel as they like to do. So I think it's probably a combination of all, all those things that, uh, that led to her decision, but it, but it is an interesting decision because she's 49 years old. You know, she's, she's really young still. I mean, I can't remember, I, her pension might not even have been invested <laughs> by that point. Right. I think, I think Buzz had done okay as, as president of, of the uh, first federal savings and loan. I want to ask about something that is not discussed in the book, and that is sexuality. Kit's career spanned the time when gay athletes first were firmly in the closet to when they were proudly out, including a couple of superstar women's athletes, uh, Billie Jean King, Martina Navratilova. We know that some of the women in your narrative are gay. Did issues of sexuality ever come up in Kit's career as an administrator? I don't think so. I, I don't think so, which is interesting. I mean, I, I, I wasn't out looking for it, but I did, you know, uh, two dozen interviews, more of 30, uh, you know, with athletes. And for whatever reason, that didn't come up. What, what, uh, what came up was, and it wasn't even all that much of this, but, but uh, just the male sports people um, looking askance at their their female colleagues. Um, the trainer I interviewed, uh, Kit's first trainer, Gail Hearn, um, she was the most blunt about it. You know, she said they made me feel unwelcome when she was working alongside the, the male trainers. But no, I, I'm, I'm trying to think it. And I just, I just don't think, you know, gay, lesbian, uh, it just, it didn't, nobody brought it up in the interviews, including me. Not sure why. What would Kit say her greatest accomplishment was? Boy, um, I think, I just think build, building the program, you know, persevering uh, through a, a time when, uh, you know, having arrived at a time when you could literally get threatened with dismissal from the university for playing a pickup basketball game with another school, uh, to winning a national championship um, out at Princeton, New Jersey with your crew, um, you know, in the space of about six years time between those two things happening. Um, then, um, you know, building uh, a strong program and uh, seeing colleagues like Tam and, and Paula flourish I, I, that that's that's her greatest accomplishment, I think. And doing it in, a, in the as as Judy Sweet says in her very gracious foreword, Kit not only knew the right thing to do, she did it the right way. And uh, whether Kit would recognize that and list that as her as an accomplishment or not, I would argue it's a great accomplishment. And by all objective criteria, meaning championships and participation and so on and so forth, it is a marvelously successful program to this day. It is, you know, uh, when when Carrie Graves, the great great Olympic rower, uh, who who was along with Kit, they were they were the first two inductees into the women's what was then the Women's Athletic Hall of Fame at UW. Carrie died in December of last year, and I, her family got in touch with me, and I was able to write a, a Madison Magazine website column on her and. The volleyball team had just won like two days earlier uh, their national championship. And the last line in my column was those those volleyball players in Columbus were standing on her shoulders and uh, not just Carrie's shoulders, but but everybody's. Yeah. And what would Kit's greatest failure have been? Boy. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure, Stu. I don't. Uh, um, some, some might look back and say, not being, not being insistent enough, not being tough enough in terms of, um, why, why seven years after title nine, did the, the, did the crew members, you know, have to change clothes outside Elroy's office. Um, but then that gets back into, you know, her having to work inside that under that umbrella and, and, uh, and live to fight another day. Um, you know, I, I, I look at like race issues, the things that you think about now, I, you know, I, I, I don't think she had any, any, you know, really glaring failures. Um, I'd be willing to 
entertain the thought that she did if if somebody brought one up. But so, so the bottom line, she was a woman of great promise and potential who attained an executive level job in a leading organization in her field where she succeeded for many years and retired on top. Yeah, I mean, that. I think that's fair to say. And that's pretty remarkable. Yeah. What do you think she would cite as her favorite athletic moment or memory at Wisconsin? Would it have been that, that first crew championship, watching the volleyball uh, tournament? What would it have been? Um, I know she wasn't there at the, at the, at the crew, um, you know, travel budgets being what they were. She did not go in 1975 out to New Jersey. I think probably that one moment sitting in the stands with Tam flare up and seeing 11,000 people come to a volleyball game. The one thing she, one she mentioned often in interviews later was the first NCAA championship, which was 1984 after AIAW was gone and they were competing under the NCAA banner and they won the uh, cross country championship out at Penn state. And it was a, it was a snowy November snow, dusty, uh, you know, light snow day. And, and she said, I'll, I'll never forget standing in the snow at Penn state and, and winning our first NCAA championship. So I think, you know, that was probably a, a pretty big one for her. I mentioned all the great biographies you've written can you put into words just how much fun it is to research and write the story of somebody's life? <laughs> well, it's more fun some days than others, as you know, Stu. But yeah, um, it, it is. It is fun. And, and it, for me, interviewing these athletes was a big kick. You know, these women, um, 40 years on uh, and, and, and almost to a person literally to a person, really, there was one or two who didn't want to talk, who declined to be interviewed. But the ones that did look back, uh, you know, really, uh, they, you, could, you could get the excitement in their voices as they're, as they're recalling it. And I would say like, yeah, but you had to, you know, you had to sell Christmas trees to, to have enough money to put gas in the car, the, the vans that you traveled in, you know, and they'd say, yeah, we just wanted to play. It's what we knew. So yeah, to be able to to record that and and know that uh, that book is going to be on the shelf, you know, down the road if 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 young girls are thinking about sports, uh, yeah, it it it's it's fun to be able to do that. And are writing athletic biographies more fun than political and corporate biographies? <laughs> um, you know, the one I'm having a lot of fun with right now, I have to say, is I'm, I'm working with Mike Leckrone on, on his autobiography, the 50-year uh, the band director. And so I think a lot of the, the fun comes in, in stories. And Mike has some uh, pretty wonderful stories about, uh, about taking that band to the Rose Bowl and taking them to Tokyo for, the, for, a, bowl, for a game against Michigan State. And uh, I, I like doing different kinds, I guess. You know, uh, I wouldn't want to do all sports, but, um, you know, frankly, when I left, when I was invited not to return to the paper uh, in 2015, I, I pretty much resolved to take on anything that came along and, and uh, you know, accept the work and then figure out how you're going to get it done. So I've been kind of lucky in the projects that have come along. They've, they've all been pretty good. I saw Lecron, Mike Lecron last night down at the Stoughton Opera House for the uh, Bach Dancing and Dynamite Society with the New England Ragtime Ensemble. <laughs> it's quite something. But as I, but in terms of your ongoing work, the one I'm really interested in, of course, is the Fred Risser autobiography, which uh, which I know will be very helpful to me, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to it, and uh, very much appreciate. Uh, again, the right thing to do, Kit saunders Nordine, and the rise of women's intercollegiate athletics at the University of Wisconsin and beyond. It is available for purchase from our friends at Mystery to Me. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, again, Doug, thanks very much. And uh, that is all the time we have for today's conversation. George Dreckman will be your host next week with his guest, Megan Ogieblin, author of God, Human, Animal, Machine. I'll be back July 25th with Ann winkler Mori, author of Allegiance to Winds and Waters, Bicycling the Political Divides of the United States. This woman and her husband bicycled the entire perimeter of the United States. It's, uh, it's quite a tale. It's, um, uh, 
harrowing at times and ennobling at other times. And we look forward to that conversation. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Charlie Pittman, Engineer Chuck Gaidman, and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison, listener-sponsored community radio.